HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. Have you ever wanted to open a restaurant, launch your own food brand, or dive into the ever-changing world of food media? Well, buckle up. Join us for Aspiration to Action, a special live podcast on Monday, June 3rd at Haven's Kitchen in Manhattan. Zara Tangora and Bretton Scott, hosts of Life's a Banquet, will lead us through tales of the good, the bad, and the transformative. Featuring Food World innovators and HRN hosts Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly, Eli Sussman, host of The Line, along with his brother Max, and Allison Kane, host of In the Sauce, in conversation with Jenny Britton Bauer. Light refreshments will be provided by Paris Gourmet, Wolfer Estate Vineyard, and Tahani. Get your tickets before they sell out by going to heritageradionetwork.org slash action. All right, hello. This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today, I'm here with Geraldine Simonis, the head beekeeper at New York City's largest rooftop farm, the Brooklyn Grange, and Renelle St. Jour, a program coordinator and beekeeper at City Growers. Thank you both so much for being here. Yeah, I'm excited yeah. to be here. Yeah, thanks for having Welcome. Um, and Geraldine is wearing this amazing sunflower <laughs> shirt um, that perfectly frames our conversation about pollinators. It's all about the bees. I wish everyone listening could see. Uh, <laughs> we'll post a photo after. <laughs> um, so I think um, I want to talk a lot about what um, what you do and um, what beekeeping in cities looks like. Um, but before we get into that, um, I'm really interested in just personally how each of you got interested in beekeeping um so why don't give us a little background first um yeah I guess well for Rennell and I it it's a family connection I'll, I'll let him uh develop a little bit more his family connection but um in my case uh my grandfather and uncle uh were and are beekeepers in Belgium and um growing up I would spend my summers on their farm and you know just like spending 
time around bees and uh, and their passion for bees. So I never really understood why anyone was was scared of them right. because they were so great. And um, the sort of the the moment that um, things changed for me, you know, professionally speaking, uh, was arriving in New York City six years ago um, and just really having this concrete jungle around and feeling mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, you know, needed that connection with nature. So I sought out. Uh, apprenticeships and actually found um, the beekeeping apprenticeship at the Brooklyn Grange. Mm. And so I did that parallel of my full-time job. And, um, you know, it just sort of had to, I wanted, I wanted to spend all my time with bees after that. So <laughs> <laughs> then I, yeah, I quit my job last year and have been doing it full-time. Amazing. It started as uh, apprentice and now you're yeah and it is I mean it kind of goes hand in hand with the urban beekeeping it's really hard to um you know develop experience here like in rural mm. Belgium you know it was like or even a rural anywhere mostly mm-hmm. there are tons of beekeepers that you can learn with and your local beekeeping chapter is really active and in New York City um you know it's not like access to beekeepers isn't readily available so just like everything in New York City you have to like fight for it and run after it (laughs) absolutely (laughs) um Renal how about you yeah so um my grandfather on my mother and father's side were beekeepers in Haiti um although I didn't uh figure that out until I actually started beekeeping Mm -hmm. um that my grandfather told me yeah he kept bees in Haiti unfortunately he passed away but um we did get to talk a little bit about bees um which was good and I started working at City Growers uh, three years ago, and beekeeping was a really big part of the organization. Our executive director was a beekeeper. Our director of education was a bee- beekeeper. So they took me out into the field and you know showed me beekeeping, and I was immediately like in love. So that's how I got into beekeeping. Hmm. Awesome! It's so interesting that you both have a family connection. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, you'd be surprised how many people that you talk to who know a beekeeper <laughs> I, yeah. now um, you know one right? yeah exactly <laughs> or two two <laughs> um and it you know Geraldine you it's funny you you mentioned that um in New York it can be hard to find beekeepers but mm-hmm. it's also I think kind of interesting that well I guess 2010 was when beekeeping became legal again yeah. in New York and um since then it seems like there's a surprising number of hives and it seems to really be growing from what I can tell. Um, I mean, I've seen hives in really interesting places like the roof of the Waldorf Astoria hotel. (laughs) Um, so, um, and I mean, Brooklyn Grange is the, probably the largest, um, what's the largest rooftop farm, but probably one of the biggest examples of operations keeping bees, I would Mm -hmm. imagine. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the scale, like how many hives you have and what that looks like? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in, in New York City, we, uh, like everything, spaces at a premium. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we have to look up to keep our hives and oftentimes they're on rooftops. So, you know, sometimes when you speak to um, beekeepers outside of the city, they're like, I keep 2,000 hives. And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> All right. So compared to them, like the operation seems small. Right, right. But for the city, yes, we um, we manage our own. Uh, we manage hives of our own. So apiaries uh, on our Long Island City farm and our Brooklyn Navy Yard farm, and uh, we also have an apiary in Harlem. Um, that's a partnership with the Doe Fund. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then uh, parallel to that, we maintain hives for clients. So we do consulting um, full service, so installation, maintenance, and honey harvest if, uh, if applicable. Um, and so all in all, I, I think this year we're about 40 hives total. And it brings us to, you know, kind of what you were talking about. <laughs> it brings us to a wide variety of locations most often than not in rooftops and right. tiny ladders and um but yeah it's fascinating you really do get to see a different perspective of the city because they're they're all over we have hives in new jersey as well so it's it's pretty cool to see when you open up the hive what the what the bees are picking up on hmm. interesting i definitely want to talk more about that mm-hmm. um, and and then some of city growers hives are also at brooklyn grange farm locations is that right right now Yes, so uh, we have one hive at the Long Island City location and one at the Brooklyn Navy Yard location. Um, But we also have many other hives uh, throughout the city as well, in total seven. Okay, and where are the other ones located? So we have uh, three at a public school on PS20, which is in Clinton Hill. Mm. And uh, it was actually a pipe program last year, uh, training parents from the school, someone on the PTA, to eventually manage the bees. And that's actually coming to an end now. Um, and we've been working with them as an apprenticeship, and then we also have uh, two hives at the Naval Cemetery Landscape site as well. At the school, are they on a roof as well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah interesting. Um, and so then, and City Growers is an educational organization, so um, a lot of what you do is about teaching kids about beekeeping, right? Can you, can you give listeners a sense of, like, the kinds of programs that you have for students? Yeah, so uh, we do take bring students up on the farm uh, for tours, and we have a honeybee honeybee education program uh, where they can learn just the basics about honeybees. But in the summer, we have a program called Brooklyn Bee Corps where we train five high school students uh, to become beekeepers and uh, manage na- a native plant site. As well. Wow, and is that is that popular? Like, are high school students really interested in learning about bees? Um, definitely. It's uh, very popular. It, it makes it really tough because we have to have group interviews. There's so many, there's a lot of interest really? um, in the program and a lot of applicants. So yeah, huh. definitely. It's very, very, very popular. Interesting. And do you think, I mean, I don't know if, do you track like how many of those students go on to actually become beekeepers? Um, we haven't yet. The program started uh, three years ago. Okay. So it's, we're still pretty, pretty early in, in regards to that program. But we do have one student that's, that's actually helping manage the hives at PS20 uh, mm-hmm. that want to maintain a relationship with bees. That's awesome. Yeah. Huh. And um, Brooklyn Grange does um, education as well for adults. Is that right? Related to beekeeping? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, through our events department, actually, we have uh, public workshops and we also have private workshops. Um, and... So those are, you know, taught once a month, pretty much, um, to your your average New Yorkers who are just seeking an adventure and new experience. And then uh, for those who want to, you know, really dive into the world of beekeeping, we have a beekeeping education program um, that I that I teach with a co-instructor, Danielle. Uh, Danielle Knott, and um, that's an eight-month-long program. Wow. Um, so we meet pretty much every two weeks, and that's really, you know, for training beekeepers, but also creating a community of beekeepers um, because, like like anything, there's, there's so much information out there, and sometimes there are competing opinions and competing personalities, and so it's really nice to meet every two weeks and just have this, like, really positive 
um, learning experience and building a community. Right. And well, the thinking about the learning experience, I, I just, I want to go back to Renelle about the kids. Um, how do kids respond? Like the first time you bring them to the farm, you know, it, maybe it's like the workshop or they're starting the beekeeping program, like especially kids in the city that maybe have not been exposed to a lot of bees or farms. Like what is that like for them? Yes. Uh, I've noticed <laughs> over the years that um, the perception, the reception of the bees have been better and better. Um, I think there's definitely been some awareness raised on on bees and how important they are because every year they're more and more excited about mm -hmm. it. Um, but you do have a few students, you know, that are really hesitant, uh, you know, to interact with the bees. But usually our goal is by the end of the lesson, uh, they lose that fear. And we actually do keep uh, data on that uh, within our workshops. And usually about 85% of the students who once had a fear of bees after leaving the farm no longer have a fear of bees. Wow. Yeah. That's cool data. <laughs> yeah. And I've been around during some of their um, tours, if you can call them. or uh, And it's really fun to see. They, they have all of these different... Um, games and like educational games to mm. explain what pollination is and you know really interact and and it's fun to watch because even like I've done things with kids and with adults or beekeeping events with kids and adults and mm -hmm. kids have the best questions and sometimes they're more fearless than adults are you kind of see the adults like backing away like, right oh, no, bees and then the kids are like how do bees breathe what are they doing in there how many are in there and they're like yes <laughs> so many questions <laughs> yes that's awesome that's great <laughs> um well and you know i have a lot of questions about just like well how do bees breathe no <laughs> i have a lot of questions just about how um urban beekeeping works like one thing i was thinking about was um like, how far do bees travel? Like, in the city, if you have bees at Brooklyn Grange, mm -hmm. um, are they pretty much staying on the farm? Or are they, you know, are they going to fly to a community garden 10 blocks away, pick up some pollen from flowers, come back to the farm? How does that, how does that work? Yeah, so bees travel up to three miles. Um, and if the forage is terrible, they can probably go farther than that. Wow. Um, but yeah, that's how we, that's usually how we scope out new locations if we want to expand. Um, because you can look on Google Maps, Google Satellite is mm. awesome. Um, and, you know, just sort of look from a three mile radius from where you are to see what the forage is like. So at our Navy Yard, uh, at the, our Brooklyn Navy Yard apiary, we know that the girls are going, um, you know, even across the river. They're probably going to Battery City Park, wow. um, Prospect Park, and then they're also, um, Fort Greene Park is, is really um, valuable. And, um, and most likely, oops, our neighbors that have, uh, you know, flower pots and um, that are doing their role in helping our pollinator friends. That's amazing. See, I, I had no idea. And is there ever, um, I was reading an article about um, forage in the city. Is there mm -hmm. ever an issue with the bees not having enough, like are, where there's just not enough for them to... Well, in New York City, we have two main um, nectar flows. Uh, so the first one is the linden tree um, that we are expecting to bloom in the next couple of weeks. And then uh, we have a later nectar flow in the fall that's for that's um, with asters and goldenrod. So those two um, plants and trees are the best resource for nectar. Okay. And then throughout the season, 
um, there will be smaller sources. And as far as pollen, uh, actually in New York City, they do have a very diverse um, forage. They have diversity of forage options. There is one point usually like end of July that there is what we call a nectar dearth. Um, so there isn't as much for them to, to pick up on. So we usually support them, um, you know, if we can during that time by uh, feeding um, or making sure that they have enough honey to get them through that dearth. Hmm. What do you, how do you feed them? Like if they don't have enough, what do they? So we feed them uh, sugar water. Um, yeah. So the spring feed is a one-to-one ratio and we usually uh, include some uh, essential oils because the bees are attracted to the smell of lemongrass. So mm. if we add some of those scents, then they'll be attracted to the sugar water. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not as uh, nutrient rich right. as honey. So it's really just kind of um, to help them out. It's a short term solution. Like we don't feed them throughout the whole season because it wouldn't really provide the nutrition that they need right long-term wise yeah yeah and so um in term in addition to um just them having enough forage are there any other challenges to beekeeping that are particular um to an urban environment yeah definitely logistical Yeah. Uh (laughs) (laughs) yeah the fact that it's uh, most of the hives are going to be on a rooftops means that you're going to have to carry equipment back up. Mm. Yeah. You know, they're also in buildings. So you have to make sure that your bees are confined to the roof and not getting into the building because uh, you really want to, um, you know, make the presence of the bees as little as possible, um, you know, in terms of being a nuisance to people. Mm. So there's uh, those logistical things and also neighbors. Um, some people, you know, don't feel too well about bees. So that's also one thing that, uh, one issue and also if there's ever an issue with the building mm-hmm. and you have to move your hive that's also a huge yeah. challenge mm. you know, to beekeepers is that do you get a lot of people who are like we don't want bees near us and that um it i mean it really it goes either way uh i guess i'd be like really excited i'd be like oh my gosh, <laughs> but i can i guess like when you you know yeah. even thought about that reaction. i mean you have you have people whose neighbors have um gardens and they're really excited mm. about pollinators and they're like this is so awesome yeah. we're seeing more bees isn't this great uh, but you know i know of a beekeeper colleague site um who well, it was years ago, but they were next to their neighbors had a pool, mm. and um, you know the honeybees were going towards a pool because they it's a water source for them, and mm. sometimes they just prefer chlorinated water, unfortunately. Weird. Um, yeah, I mean they prefer uh, like soil uh, water, so it's nutrient rich. But mm. you know, in a pinch, chlorinated works, I guess, for them. But so in that case, you know, na- the neighbors are just like, "This is a nuisance. I can't hang out by my pool." Um, but as you mentioned before, beekeeping is legal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been legal since 2010, and the main regulations require us to have, well, register them, and also have a water source and um, have movable frames. So as long as you are within the law, um, you know, it's really just about being neighborly uh, right. after that. So moving it maybe further from the property line or uh, building a trellis so the bees you know, fly higher or something like that. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and I guess in New York, um, 
people are going to have way weirder things happening in their neighborhood than some bees, you know? Yeah, I mean, you would think. I feel like, yeah, we've all had probably, like, weird and, like, scary experiences, but... Yeah, some people are very scared of of honeybees. Mm. And kind of like what we were talking about before, it's like, well, because often, more often than not, they haven't been stung. Right. So So the fear of it is more than... Yeah, the fear is like they built it up. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, Yeah. So her solution is everyone should just get stung by a honeybee once and and realize that it's it's totally fine. It's no big deal unless you're allergic, in which case... Well, there's actually, yeah, there's apitherapy. Um, that's the, the it's a, like therapy that they use um, honey stings and bee venom um, to help with uh, ailments such as like arthritis or, really? or things like that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. If you want to go down a rabbit hole. Yeah, that's going to be a whole other discussion <laughs> for sure. So that's what I think about every time I get stung. I'm like, oh, it's free apitherapy. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Um, okay, well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break um, for a word from a sponsor. When we come back, um, I want to talk a little bit more about um, how bees benefit the city and then also um, how what you're doing can potentially help bee populations. Uh, we'll be right back. Cool. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average $3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The Virtual Agritourism Conference will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience anytime on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources, and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by Escape Maker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available for purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2019 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Geraldine from the Brooklyn Grange Farm and Renell from City Growers, and we've been talking about beekeeping. Um, so we were talking a lot about the logistics um, of having bees in the city. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the benefits and, and bigger issues around this. What do you think are the biggest benefits of keeping bees in a place like New York? Yeah, so um, pollination is definitely the obvious one. Right. Um, uh, but more to pollination is just bigger than just, you know, spreading the pollen. It also creates food for other insects, um, habitats for other life. Um, so it plays a really big part in the ecosystem. And then uh, also collecting the honey, you know, that's very good uh, for uh for beekeepers, for enthusiasm regarding pollinators and uh, uh, keeping beekeeping going and stuff like that. 
Right. Yeah, I was actually reading a study recently from um, UBC in uh, British Columbia, and they were talking about this ongoing study in Vancouver where they're testing honey from different neighborhoods, um, and they can find different levels of lead or zinc um, or other irritants. And um, so they, it, they've been doing it for four years now. And the, the, what they're positing is that honey can be a biomonitor of the health of an ecosystem. Um, so beyond, you know, like what Renal was saying of the benefit of, you know, growing beautiful food and right. um, helping the seeds and, um, and also just, you know, building the sense of community, bees are, are really important, uh, well, pollinators in general mm-hmm. are, but we can test this through the honey, mm-hmm. um, are, are great, uh, you know, monitors of our ecosystem health. Right. Would you even be able to operate Brooklyn Grange at the scale um, that it is right now if you didn't have bees? Like, if you didn't keep bees? Just because, I mean, like, the, in terms of pollination, um, oh, you know, the plants yeah. depend so much on, are there enough pollinators around that? Um, hard question. Yeah, <laughs> definitely hard question. It is the, although you have to register your hives with the city, unfortunately, there's no real map that tells you where the I bees looking, are. That would yeah. be really helpful for all of us. I was looking for one, actually. Yeah. So it. we, I know of some beekeepers or if, and if city growers continued, then, then their hives in Clinton Hill mm. can continue pollinating them. Um, you know, the, it usually farming and beekeeping definitely go together. Uh, I think that it would be probably survive um but Mm. perhaps the food itself wouldn't look as as tasty or because it wouldn't be as well pollinated um and you know they're beyond just the food growing aspect uh as renelle said the interest in beekeeping is just growing and growing so the the fact that we have workshops and the fact that we have Mm -hmm. an education program you know brings people to the farm and they get really excited about that and it allows us to educate them about you know, how food is grown. Um, and what's really cool is you can actually walk around the farm and see the bees pollinating the the plants and, and vegetables around the farm. And you can see the color of the pollen of, um, you know, those. so the, you know, I saw that the clover, it's um, like a sort of like clear uh, white pollen and sunflowers are yellow pollen. And so it's it's fun to, to see that, direct relationship mm-hmm. yes i also think uh the enthusiasm around beekeeping has also raised a lot of awareness about pesticides mm. and uh. how they affect all of our insects and so i think that's another positive uh, benefit of beekeeping well and and that brings up another point that i wanted to talk about which right is this you know idea of we're losing pollinators and it's a huge issue right um colony collapse and um and oh, there's a lot of research that shows some of the pesticides that we're using, like neonicotinoids, are mm. potentially co- uh, causing that. Um, and I, I was reading this article about how um, in the Midwest and um, California Central Valley, where agriculture is way more concentrated, mm-hmm. you know, that that's actually where bees are disappearing the fastest and like you I, I think there's this funny like thing where I, I had to wrap my head around like oh you'd think in these agricultural areas there'd be more bees because mm. they need them they need pollinators there's plants but like those areas are so um the habitats are destroyed you know they're so deforested and then also they're using all these pesticides so I guess that's a long way of saying 
um, that maybe cities are almost can be like a refuge. Yeah, I mean, intensive agriculture and monoculture, it's, you know, a very uh, poor source of nutrition because, and you probably came across this in that article, There, there's um, like brokerage, uh, pollina- pollination brokers. Um, so uh, commercial beekeepers that, you know, put hives on the truck and the bees go around the United States. So they'll be in the citrus mm. and they'll be there for the almond bloom. Um, you know, in Maine, they'll be there for the blueberries. Um, and, and that, you know, in that case, it can be really challenging for them because they don't necessarily know what the grower is, um, you know, spraying their crops with, if they are spraying it, perhaps they're not giving enough time for it to dissipate. So I, yeah, I'd be curious to see that study if it was the, you know, the bees actually from that population or if it was just the intensive agriculture that the broker pollinators, um, you know, were sort of getting sick progressively there. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is definitely, I mean, you talk about colony collapse disorder, uh, which is, you know, a, a huge and scary term, but in everyday beekeeping, it's not really a term that we use because it's, that's sort of, a symptom of, you know, habitat loss, poor nutrition, and varroa mites that are kind of like the bane of every beekeeper's existence at this point. What are they called? Varroa mites, V-A-R-R-O-A. It's a varroa destructor. Um, So they feed on the fat bodies of uh, honeybees and they weaken them. um, So they make them more susceptible to diseases and they also transmit diseases such as Israeli deformed wing virus, um, or paralysis and deformed wing virus. And, uh, yeah, they just, um, they, they are a pain. They arrived in the States around the eighties. Um, and it is definitely the number one challenge that we have beekeeping. Interesting. They just can show up and. Well, they are, um, transmitted, uh, socially, I guess, if you will. Uh, So because, um, you know, like the mite can be left on a flower mm-hmm. or like bees are trying to rob another hive and they are transmitted that way. Um, the mites are actually pretty big when you compare to the size of, of the bee. And um, sometimes you can see a few mites on a bee and, you know, it's just, it makes them, uh, it weakens them and makes them less likely to survive winter, which is how we determine colony health is um, the overwinter rate. Mm, interesting. How, um, how do you deal with, um, a situation where you, if you, if you get those mites, like what can you do? Uh, so, (laughs) um, the, the interest in varroa mites, well, so because colony collapse was so scary, I guess, um, it got uh, a lot of research funds. So it allowed them to study more and more what the other challenges are. Um, and for varroa mites, the research is ever going. So there are, um, you know, the current, um, science based, uh, information that we get from Cornell and the dice lab, um, is treating with, uh, formic acid, um, or oxalic acid, acid mm-hmm. that are both, um, although they have the word acid in them, they're organic. Right. Um, so that, but we, we, test for mites and um, based on the threshold that the scientists have given us then we'll see whether or not 
the mite load is too high and if we need to treat or if the mite load is, um, you know, just fine and they'll continue to develop in a healthy way. Right. Yes, but the the best thing is prevention, and yeah. Yeah. there are like many steps some that beekeepers can take uh, to get that ranging from genetics to cultural practices to then eventually treating. But prevention is the biggest thing really for us, and constantly monitoring the hive to make sure that there aren't mites. Yeah. Wow, this is, I I didn't know about this at all. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, Learning genetics so are yeah. That's a good point. Genetics yeah. are very important. Um, I also want to um, just tell listeners that if you've been hearing some banging in the background of um, this podcast, um, it's, you know, m- might be dis- a little bit distracting, but it's also really appropriate because it's actually farmers who are on top of our recording studio, which is in a shipping container um, that has a farm on the roof of it. Um, so apparently they're up there doing some uh Harvesting, maybe, or cool. watering, or <laughs> something that requires I think changing of... the roof. On the <laughs> okay, changing the roof. That makes more sense about because uh, it is very loud. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> um, so yeah, but you know, I just think it was like super annoying, but people should know at least it's uh, contributing to more urban farming yeah. in our city. <laughs> it's a part of New York City. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um. And actually, that's funny. One other thing I wanted to ask um, you guys about is um, green roofs. New York Mm -hmm. City just passed this exciting legislation that is going to mean a lot more um, roofs are going to be green um, in the city. Um, Do you think that that will affect beekeeping in the city? I definitely do. Um, When you're keeping bees on a roof, it's kind of important that it's not like black because it can get really, really hot mm. and eventually kill your bees if you have, like, a tar on top of your roof. So green roofs are definitely going to make more roofs, you know, a viable option to keep bees on top of it. And it's also going to help the people growing on there as well. Right. right. Yeah, it'll, I mean, I, I wonder how long it'll be before we see, like, the actual results of... Um, yeah, I mean, the... Um, Brooklyn Grange has a design and build department that builds uh, green roofs. And so they have some great examples of, you know, there are like native meadowlands on rooftops Mm. around the city. Um, So, yeah, when you are, you don't necessarily know where all the green spaces are when you're on the sidewalk. But once you're on the roof, you can sort of look around and see that there's a lot more green than you thought there was. And now that there's the, you know, Mobilization Act I think that it'll be really exciting to see what people decide to do with their roofs. Well, with the new builds, yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And do, does Brooklyn Grange... There they are, <laughs> the farmers. The <laughs> um, does Brooklyn Grange, um, like when you do those build-outs, do you also sometimes install hives? Like that's sort of part of it? Yeah, there yeah. there are opportunities for cross-pollination. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I have like 10 bee puns a day. That was my first one today. I was, I was already, when I was writing the description for this episode earlier, um, I was like, ah, I really want to use the I word know, buzz, but I, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I know. I've had to limit myself and my friends to 10 bee puns a day. So, but, um, but yes, there, uh, all joking aside, there are opportunities for us to, to work together and, um, you know, they uh, have a, a list that, that we've worked on together of plants that are really good for supporting pollinators. Right. And they've been, um, you know, they, they have a lot of roofs around the city. 
uh, that they work on. And so, um, you know, it's, it's really great to see that uh, more companies and private residences are, are interested in, um, in doing that. Great. Um, well, thank you both so much for being here. I think yeah. we're going to wrap up, especially since drilling has commenced on the <laughs> roof. <laughs> um, um, if people want to find out more about um, your organizations and your beekeeping programs, where can they find it? The internets. Um, yeah, brooklyngrangefarm.com. Great. Right yes. Um, so you guys can head to citygrowers.org, um, specifically citygrowers.org slash donate if you can. We're having a fundraiser uh, for our summer camp uh, program, trying to fund seats. So, uh, yeah, you guys can follow us there and also Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. And don't forget to support independent radio by visiting heritageradionetwork.com and clicking on the beating heart. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.